Well, good morning. In June of 1989, China was in an uproar. There were hundreds of thousands of democratic protesters railing against the oppressive Communist Party. Everything came to a head in the center of Beijing, what we uh, now is a familiar place, Tiananmen Square. And we've seen this iconic picture once before. Chinese army sent 18, this is the first wave of 18 tanks and support trucks, right down the center of the avenue, right towards the protesters. And if you look at this picture closely, you see one guy. One guy standing there. It looks like maybe he didn't think about this. He was on his way home from shopping. He's got two bags. Obviously aware of what's happening. For whatever reason, he had had enough. Walks out to the center of the street. Stands still right in front of these incoming tanks. He's standing there. The tank comes to a stop. Doesn't run him over. The tank turns to go around him. And the guy does a little dance. Hops over here. Tank goes this way. He hops over here. They're at a standstill. The tank driver stops, shuts off the engine of the tank, and you can go watch videos of this. The guy hops on the tank. He gets up to the top, bangs on the roof. The top of the tank opens up, and you see this guy flat on top of the tank. I'm talking to the guys inside. Who knows what he said? I assume it's something like, turn around. Why are you here? This is not right. I don't know. And then he gets back down and stands there. The entire Chinese army is potentially going to come after this guy. And there he stands. Probably some people nearby concerned for the guy's life. Rightfully so. The Chinese army had already killed dozens and dozens of people by this point. They grab the guy and they whisk him off into the crowd. No one knows who he was, where he went, what happened to him. Some people say he was taken and killed a couple weeks later, but really nobody knows. And this is what he's remembered for. Standing his ground in front of a line of tanks. You know, two questions come to mind as I think about this story. Number one, what in the world would possess a guy to stand in front of a line of tanks? They don't have to shoot him, they just run him over. What would possess someone to stand there? What did he possibly think that one man could do in the face of an army? And then the second question that comes to mind is if it came down to it, would I be willing to stand in front of an army of tanks based on my convictions? What if it wasn't democracy versus communism? Well, what if it wasn't about maybe Democrat or Republican? But, but what about if it was a matter of right and wrong? What about if it was a matter of following God or following the world? Would I have the courage, would I have the conviction to stand alone? 
Do I have what it takes to defy the powers that be? If my life was on the line, if there was no deliverance seemingly coming, would I still stand strong? Would I have enough faith and enough courage to stand because of my faith? What would you be willing to risk as a man or a woman of faith? If we take it out of communist China and we bring it back to the New Testament, Jesus tells us what it will cost us to follow Him. In Luke 14, there's this remarkable passage where Jesus is pushing back against the crowd. And He says, if you're going to follow Me, you shouldn't expect an easy life. He tells us in Luke 14, verse 25, that unless we're willing to say that we hate our father and mother and children and brothers and sisters, we can't follow Him. He goes on to tell the crowds that, that unless we're willing to take up a cross and bear it daily, that we can't be His disciple. He ends that piece of teaching by saying, if you're not willing to renounce everything that you have, then you're not ready to be called a disciple of Christ. As you look through the rest of the New Testament, and if you just even stick to the Gospels and Jesus, He warns us that the cost of following Him is high. His followers will be rejected and excluded. They should expect persecution and suffering. They will experience loneliness and ask to sacrifice much. In a popular book came out a few years ago, Pastor Kyle Eidelman, he wrote a book called Not a Fan. And in it, he poses this question. Can you really say that you're following Jesus if it hasn't cost you anything? Another way you might turn that around is by saying, if you haven't sacrificed anything, if you haven't suffered for the cause of Christ, there's a good chance that you're not carrying His cross. And as we continue through Genesis this morning, I think what we're going to find again is that true followers of God at some point are going to have to take a stand for what's right. And in a world gone wrong, taking a stand can be pretty costly. But what we'll also see is that taking a stand for what's right and in God Far out, the benefits far outweigh the cost. So before we get into our text this morning, I just want to remind ourselves of the context. We go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we learn that God created everything, and everything was good. And then we get to Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 is marked by the first sin of man. Genesis 3.15, you have the pronouncement of the curse upon the serpent, but you also have the pronouncement of the promise of the gospel, the promise of redemption. The seed of the serpent will bring death and destruction, while the seed of the woman will bring redemption and will be the one who will ultimately crush the serpent's head. And from there, we move into Genesis 4, where we started this series. Genesis 4, we begin to see the depths of sin 
as Cain kills his brother Abel in anger and in jealousy. As he chooses to leave the Lord, leave his family, he goes off and he builds a city. He builds a city, he names it after his son Enoch. We are then walked through the genealogy of Cain and we see much production, much success, achievements, innovation. But it's devoid of God. The end of chapter 4, we get this contrast between the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. Verse 26 of chapter 4 speaks of Seth when he had his son Enosh that those days were then marked by a people who called upon the name of the Lord. And with that transition, we get to Genesis 5, which is what we walked through last week, where we notice that God is keeping His promise of redemption specifically through the line of Seth. And the righteous men that are coming through the line of Seth are marked by men who don't define success by the world's standards. They're marked by men and women who demonstrate their faith by their walk. And we see the faith of the righteous passed on to the next generation. And so with that, we open up to Genesis chapter 6, where we'll be this morning. And we kind of zoom out and we're going to consider the state of the world as a whole. Now I have to warn you, this morning. This morning's talk is in three parts. The first part is a seminary lecture. Who are the sons of God? Part two is a sermon in and of itself. It's how did the sons of God fall? And part three is an application sermon. How do we respond? What do we learn? So I'm asking you to hang on. Part one, the seminary lecture, is about to begin. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray that we would would take in all that you have for us this morning, that we would learn something, but not just for knowledge's sake, that we would learn to apply, that we would take the lessons that we learned, the good and the bad, from the righteous and the ungodly, that we would see how it would apply in our modern day where we're seeking to live right in a world gone wrong. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I hope you're there. I have it here up on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 6 begins like this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So these four verses are maybe some of the most debated and hard to understand passages in all of Scripture. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. And it may or may be why I'm up here preaching this and not Pastor Keith. (laughs) The controversy comes mainly with trying to define who are the sons of God. And if we answer who are the sons of God, then it gives us a clue to who are the daughters of men, and then it gives us a clue to who in the world are these Nephilim referenced in verse 4. 
The good news is this. This is not a salvation issue. The guys that I usually read, that I trust, that I go to, are kind of split with a couple different views. Um, So we don't have to worry about salvation here, but it is good to know what we believe and why we believe it. The other good piece of news is that this is not a seminary class. This is just a Sunday morning sermon. And so we're not going to get into every little minutia trying to figure out everything that's contained in these four verses. Otherwise, we'd be here until next week. So what I would like to do is just briefly address the two main possibilities as it refers to understanding who the sons of God are. There are there are several ideas out there. We're going to go ahead and skip the idea that this is addressing Sumerian kings over thousands of generations. That's out there and I don't think it holds much water. We're going to go ahead and skip over the theories about alien abduction. Honestly, it's out there. We're going to focus on, on two, two scenarios. One, that the sons of God are referring to fallen angels mixing with the daughters of men, mankind. And then secondly, we're going to look at uh, the sons of God referring to men who came out of the line of Seth. People who came out of the righteous line and fell into ungodly ways. So the first thing I want to do is just address um, the sons of God as fallen angels. This phrase right here, Ben Elohim, is sons of God. There's a couple attractive reasons why this would mean fallen angels. Versus this, every Old Testament use of this word, Ben Elohim, is uh, referring to angels. It only shows up three other times, though, in Job. Job 1, Job 2, Job 38. Every time it's speaking of angels... Um, and so that helps us understand what sons of God may mean. Satan understood the curse. Satan understood the curse was to come through the seed of the woman. So it would make sense for Satan to devise a plan to attack the seed, to pollute the seed of the woman. And so maybe part of his plan was to send fallen angels or demon-possessed men to mate with women, and now we have a corruption of humankind through these angelic, fallen angelic beings. If we take this view, it also helps give some context to a couple other difficult passages in the New Testament. There's a passage in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7 of Jude that speak of angels who have fallen, who have committed a grievous sin similar to that of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it's of some sort of sexual nature perhaps, and whatever their sin was, it earned them severe judgment. And so it would make sense that this passage could speak to answering those questions. It also gives us context for why the word Nephilim is introduced here. Nephilim comes from the root word in the Hebrew, nephal, which means to fall. So maybe that's describing their parents, the fallen ones. It would make sense that these men would be giants and wicked as they were part of Satan's plan to corrupt the seed of the woman. And then it would also lead credence to why God needed to destroy the world. He needed to get rid of these half-breed angels, men, uh, mating with the daughters of men and taking care of, of that. All that being said, I think there's a better solution. I think there's a, a, a more consistent and a more logical solution. 
And that's simply that the sons of God referenced here are, are men who came from the righteous line that were attracted to the ways of the world and fell into sin. Let me walk you through quickly why I think that. I'll start by just kind of refuting what I just told you. Yes, all of the sons of God reference, Ben Elohim in Job, always is clearly talking about angels. But the setting of Job is heaven. And the setting of Genesis is earth. Not only that, but in Job, when sons of God is used, Satan is present, but it's a contrast. So even in heaven, sons of God, sons of God is referring to heavenly faithful angels, not fallen ones. Yes, Satan did know of the curse, but there's no reason to believe, outside of pagan mythology and our own imagination, that angels are able to mate with humans, that angels are able to somehow, that angels somehow carry a DNA that is compatible with humans and then can somehow mix and produce a superhuman race or evil race. Um, there is no reason to believe that angels can reproduce at all, fallen or otherwise. This passage could be what is referred to in Jude and Second Peter. However, it doesn't have to be. There's other ways to interpret those passages as well. Maybe most importantly, um, the issue is of context. There's a couple of reasons why context helps us understand sons of God as men. Here for the Nephilim, yes, it could be speaking of a, of a cross half-breed race. But if you look at verse 4 carefully, it doesn't say that the Nephilim were the product of the union of the sons of God and daughters of men. It says that they were there. The Nephilim were there in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So it's an inference that maybe they could have been the product, but it also doesn't have to mean that. Some positive arguments. Not just refuting the other, but positive arguments why um, the sons of God are fallen men, not angels. The sole responsibility for the coming judgment that we start to begin to look at next week with a flood, the coming judgment, it all rests solely on man's shoulders. If you go through, if you look at verse 3, verse 4 twice, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, and 9, the only references to judgment are to man and flesh. No reference of angels, no reference of their sin. And if it was the sons of God coming in as angels coming into the daughters of men, that means that the angels were the instigators of the sins and they're not even mentioned in terms of judgment. It's true that while... Oh, in addition to that, angels are not mentioned at all up to this point. There's no mention of angels in, in Genesis 1 through 6. The first time, if this isn't talking of angels, that angels show up is in Genesis chapter 16. And there's another word for that. And the Hebrew is malach. And malach is used consistently, multiple, multiple times throughout the Old Testament to refer to angels. And even angels of, there's phrases malach Elohim, angels of God. And so the phrase was used by Moses when he wrote Genesis in multiple different instances, and he never uses sons of God again to describe angelic beings. It's always the other term. 
Not to mention, there are other allusions to sons of God being men throughout the Old Testament. So while the phrase, Bene Elohim, is never used in that again, sons of the living God is used. In Deuteronomy, we see that sons of Yahweh, your God, is employed speaking of the people of Israel. When the people of Israel sin in Deuteronomy 32, Moses tells them that they are not the sons of God. And then we see uh, throughout um, Hosea, Psalms, Isaiah, there's all references to people being sons of the living God. And so while this exact phrase doesn't show up, sons of God, we have certainly other allusions to that. And that isn't to speak of the many New Testament cases where we're building a case for children, sons of God. And then lastly the greater context that we just spent a few minutes walking through, comparing the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth, it provides this context to draw the line between men and men, righteous men and fallen men. After comparing and contrasting the line of the serpent with the line of the woman and then the line of Cain with the line of Seth, it makes sense to go to the righteous line, the ungodly line not to mention the other context of Moses' writing this to the people of Israel so they have it on record. They're about to enter the promised land. They're about to enter Canaan. What's one of the major warnings that God gives to his people? Don't get married to them. Don't mix with unbelievers. It's going to be a problem and improves to be. So the view that we're going to take this morning as we walk through the rest of this text is that the sons of God are referring to fallen men from the line of Seth, not angels. That helps guide our application because we don't have to figure out how half-breed angels, men, applies to us today. We're talking about righteous people that could fall. And when we consider that, it should give us great pause. If the righteous men in the line of Seth, could fall from God, could be attracted to the world to forsake their godly heritage, then the same could be said of us. So we need to consider what that means for us. That concludes part one, the seminary lecture of this talk. And so we're going to move into part two now. Part two is, How in the world could the sons of God, if they're so godly, if they come from a godly line, then how in the world do they see the daughters of men, forget their godly heritage, and then go on to get into a pretty bad state? Look at the rest of the passage, or most of the rest of the passage, with me here in Genesis 6. Verse 5 continues. So what happens after this marriage between people that should have been righteous, and people of the world, what happens? Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made the man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what happened to all of these godly people? What we learn is that a godly heritage 
is not a guarantee of a personal walk with God. Just because you're here in church this morning, just because your parents were Christian, is no guarantee that you are walking with the Lord. Why would godly people coming from a godly home and a godly heritage, people that walked with Adam, be tempted to walk with the world and away from the Lord. Walking through this text, I'm going to give you three reasons. Three reasons that apply to their day and three reasons that I think are also applicable to us as well. The first is this, the pursuit of freedom. Genesis 6-2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. This is not just about attraction and sex, although that's certainly here. This is about a rebellion against God's plan. This is a rebellion against everything that God has told his people how to live. We have a tendency to say, no, I don't like what God says. I'm going to go do my thing over here. And here we see the same thinking happening with a righteous line. I can imagine... A teen guy coming home in Genesis day. Genesis 6, teenager, a boy, he comes home. Hey, Dad, I met a girl. Oh, that's great. You're like 25 now. I guess you're old enough to date. Okay, I said teenager. We'll keep it there. 16-year-old kid comes home. Hey, Dad, I met a girl. Oh, really? Tell me about her. Oh, she's great. This, that, that. Well, who are her parents? Um such and such. Well, I don't know them. Where are they from? Well, they're from, you know, that other town over the hill and down there where, yeah, I'm not supposed to go. Yeah, down there. Son, sit down. We need to have a talk. I'm sure this girl is great. Maybe she appears nice. But we've got a warning. We've got to stay with God-fearing people. If we don't, who knows what will happen? <laughs> and I can just imagine the teen guy saying, maybe out loud, he lets it slip, maybe in his head, yeah, but she's hot and she likes me. And so as much as dad is, is telling the, the kid, you can't do this, this isn't a good idea, you know teenage guys, all they're thinking about is that pretty girl. And as dad's talking, it's going in one ear and out the other. And soon enough, the guy's running after the girl. He's pursuing freedom in his own flesh. He's putting himself, his own plan, his own desires in front of God. And before we get too hard on the teenage guy, don't we do that as well? Don't we sometimes put our plans, our desires, our purposes, our want and desire for our own freedom in front of what God has told us, how we ought to live? It happens. And I'm sure that teenage boy didn't know it at the time, and I'm sure we don't really think about it a whole lot either. But that boy made the same mistake that Eve did. And often we make the same mistake that Eve did. He saw something that was attractive. He saw it. He saw that it was attractive, and then he took it. And there plunged the human race, into sin. And we follow after that same pursuit of freedom, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. You see, Satan didn't need a new plan of fallen angels cohabitating 
with women, the same old tricks still work. How does God respond? Genesis 6.3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. This wasn't just about unbelievers marrying believers or righteous people marrying unrighteous people. This is the bigger idea of men had rebelled against God's plan and God saying, okay, if you're going to rebel against me, there's a limit to that. There's a judgment coming. In this context, it was a 120 years. Then the flood would come. The Apostle Paul gives us a picture of that in Romans chapter 1. We won't get there. We won't have enough time to read through it. Read the second half of Romans 1. And what does it mean for God's Spirit not to abide with man? He gives them up. He gives them up to what they want, their own freedom. But do you know what their own freedom leads to? It leads to trouble. It leads to all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. It leads to envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. It leads to gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless people. That's what happens when God removes His Spirit from His people. And He said, I can only deal with sin for so long. Sin often looks attractive when we're not considering the consequences. It's also the lure of power. I think the Nephilim are more explained not as a race of people, not as a racial group, but a reference to those of fearsome character. It could mean to fall as in fallen, but it could also mean to fall as in fall upon. These were men, perhaps women, who were warriors. They instilled fear in people. Not only, not only were they violent attackers, invaders, they were focused on making a name for themselves. They were the men of old, the men of renown. And no doubt there were some in the righteous line that were looking at their heritage saying, well, I don't have any big giants in my line. I don't have any um, big successes in my line. I don't have any warriors in my line. I don't know if it's worth following this God. Maybe I'll go do my own thing or, or maybe I'll go try to make a name for myself like these Nephilim did. They caused the people of God to stumble. Whether it was because people desired a different kind of success, or maybe they just cowered in fear for what might happen if they crossed the Nephilim. Either way, they weren't trusting in God. They were acting according to their own will. You think there's anyone out there today that is lured by power and success? that is tempted to leave a godly life so that they can gain more of the world, to leave a life of righteous living so that they can climb higher up the social ladder, so that they would be remembered for themselves instead of God? I think we know that that still applies today. This would also explain why the Nephilim show up again in Numbers 13 after the flood. They weren't wiped out. God didn't wipe them out com- com- 
completely if they were a half-breed of race because they show back up in Numbers 13, and that presents a whole other bit of problems, unless we understand the Nephilim to refer to their character, to men who only cared about themselves, who were fearsome, who were violent, who were marauders and evildoers. We also have the pressure of the crowd. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What's happening is there's becoming less and less followers of God. There's becoming less and less righteousness. There's becoming less and less of a reason to stand up for what's right. Evil is growing and growing and growing. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger which means more and more people are going their own way. They're pursuing their own freedom, pursuing their own pleasure, pursuing their own power, pursuing their own success. And before long, there's only a few righteous left. Who are they to stand against the world? And I think some fell because of the pressure of the crowd. It was too much. Go back to Romans chapter 1 and read that whole list of people. What would you do if the whole world was consumed with evil? I think some righteous men fall because they're consumed with those around them. How does God respond to all this wickedness? Because the picture is that it's a a funnel going down and down and down, less and less righteous, less and less righteous, and then there's one. Genesis verse 6 and 7 say, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made him. God looks at the world and he says, that was a mistake. Okay, That's not what it means. He relented. He regretted. What does it mean? Did God change his mind? Did God make a mistake? Well, without having to go into another seminary lecture, The short answer is no. No, God did not change His mind. Does it appear sometimes that God changes His mind from our perspective? Yes. The easiest way to get our head around this concept is to think about the story of Jonah. Wicked Ninevites. God tells Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. And if you preach to the Ninevites, and if if they repent, confess, believe in me, then they will be saved. And Jonah says, that's not a good idea. Those are bad people. I'm going the other way. God says, okay, good luck, but I'm going to swallow you up in a big old fish. And finally, Jonah has to obey God. Jonah obeys God. He goes and preaches to the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh repent. Jonah, in his message to the Ninevites, is saying, if you will repent, God will change his mind and not destroy you. And so from the Ninevites' perspective, as they hear Jonah preaching to them, God is going to destroy us. They repent. God changes his mind and doesn't. From the Ninevites' perspective, sure he did. But God's purpose never changed. God always knew what he was going to do and what he always purposed to do, he always does. Was God sorry? Well, not sorry in the sense that he made a mistake, but it says that he regretted it And it grieved him to his heart. So what's happening there? Does God grieve? Yes, he does. While God's purpose, will, plans, decree does not change, what we're seeing insight to is his emotion. How he feels about sin 
doesn't change either. And sin grieves God. And if sin grieved God in whatever year B.C. we're in, guess what? It still grieves Him today because God doesn't change. So thankfully, we have a turning point. We have a turning point in verses 8 and verses 9 of Genesis chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was still was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What does this tell us? A world is getting more and more out of control, more and more wicked, and then we see Noah. The only guy left, literally on the planet. And he finds favor with God. The profound truth of this verse is made clear in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What do we learn of Noah? He found grace. Just like his fathers before him, he had faith in the one true God by grace. This is how you and me receive grace as well. Only by God. We also learn that he was righteous. He lived according to God's plan. But it would be wrong to get that out of order. It would be wrong to say, Noah lived a righteous life, so he earned God's favor. No. He found grace. God gave Noah grace. And by knowing and trusting in that grace, it revealed itself in the life of Noah by the way he lived. And then we know he was blameless in his generation. No, Noah was not perfect. I'm sure he sinned. But what this is telling us is that while the rest of the world may have thought he was a crazy lunatic following some God out there, he was also blameless. No one could bring a charge against him for doing something wrong. No one could accuse him of hypocrisy. He was blameless. He practiced what he preached. And just like Enoch, his walk followed his talk. And so that brings us to part three of today's sermon, which is a sermon in of itself, but it's short. How does this apply to us? That's Noah in a wicked world that was about to experience the flood. Well, what about us? And the question where it hits our lives today is, what does it look like to be righteous when the rest of the world has gone wrong? And thankfully, we're, at not, at, we're not at Noah's point yet. But I think we can agree we live in an ungodly world. There are certainly those who are not following him. So what does it look like for me to be righteous in my world today? Three quick things. Number one, while some pursue their own freedom, the righteous embrace God's plan. There are reasons for God's laws, His requirements, His commands, His word. The flood didn't happen just because righteous people married unrighteous people. But righteous people marrying unrighteous people started to accelerate the wickedness of mankind. As believers, we're called to follow God's plan. 
Not because he's trying to restrict our behavior, but because it's what's best for us. And it will result in his glory. We should recognize that sin is much more than just breaking God's law or rules. But it grieves his heart and it harms our relationship with him. While some are lured by power and success, the righteous depend on God's strength. The flood didn't come because the Nephilim were on the earth either. The greater reality was that people were boasting in their own strength and even their own wickedness. They were continually doing evil. They were living for themselves instead of for the Lord. As believers, we're called to rely on God's power and not to do anything in our own strength. It may seem that the wicked have the upper hand. It may seem like evil is prospering. But that's a short-sighted view that doesn't consider the end. The righteous embrace God's plan. The righteous depend on God's strength. And while some are pressured by the crowd, the righteous stand by God's grace. Why did the flood come? Because men followed their own wicked passions. The entire world, save one, had rejected God's plan and promise. They were powerful, violent, and wicked. They were living for themselves. They were ignoring the God who created them. But as believers, we would do well to remember that Noah found grace before he was righteous. Paul cautions the followers of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10:12 when he says, "Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall." And so all of us, all of these things should lead us to have the confidence to stand up for Christ, to live right in a world gone wrong no matter what the cost. And so as we end, I want to remind you of two things that are unique to our situation that don't necessarily apply to Noah's day. He didn't have the benefit of. Number one, we don't have to stand alone because Jesus stood alone for us. The author of Hebrews says, but as it is, He, speaking of Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What the author of Hebrews tells us, the whole of Scripture tells us, is we will stand before God in judgment. But we do not stand alone as we stand by grace through faith. We stand with Christ. As we stand in this world here and now, we have the Spirit indwelling in us. We never stand alone. We have Christ standing in us and for us, with us.
But what we know Noah didn't have, I know that we all have today, and that's number two. We don't have to stand alone if we will commit to stand with each other. We're a church. We're supposed to be the righteous based on Christ's work. We don't have to stand alone if we will commit to one another. So let us encourage one another to stick with God's plan. Let us encourage one another to depend on God's strength. Let us encourage one another to stand by God's grace. We need each other. Let us live out the truth of Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet one another, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need one another. There are some in this room who are being tempted to go on their own, to pursue their own freedom. We need some people to pull them back in and say, here's God's plan and stick with it. There are some that are trying to find success in their own strength and we need some of you to pull them in and say, no, you need to stand on God. There are some who think they have no strength and they need to be pointing to the one who gives strength. There are some of you in here that need to come alongside someone in here that is weak and suffering and going through a hard time and they need some help standing in God's grace. This is the gift of the church that Noah had no benefit of because he was the only one. We don't have to be the only ones. We can encourage one another to stand by God's grace in a world that has gone wrong. We can live right with Jesus. Will we do it? If the world goes wrong, will you stand with Jesus? Let's pray. Dear Lord, there's a lot to go through. It's a lot of words in a little bit of time. Lord, I pray that there's something in here, a piece of this that would would prick our hearts, would turn us to, to You, that we would be able to see Your good plan. We would be able to see how our lives can reflect You, Your glory, and Your Son. That we would ask ourselves where we're tempted to fall, where we're tempted to seek our own freedom, go after our own passions, look for worldly success, depend on our own strength. Lord, I pray that You would raise up a people at Chapel Hill Lake that stand with one another, encourage one another, that there wouldn't just be one here who would stand in a world go wrong, but that we would be a church that stands together, that that proclaims Your truth, Your gospel, and Your hope that is so desperately needed in our world, which is rapidly going wrong. Lord, I pray You give us strength in Your name. Amen.